Hello and welcome to episode 292 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in different locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 and still alive. Still alive. Champion, Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> They're the champions of still being alive. All right, well, let's jump right into it. Our beer this week from our friends at Silver City Brewery, a beer so new it is not even advertised on their website. Could not find it anywhere on there, but wow. I found it on the shelves of QFC. <laughs> Hold on, is my internet bad or is your internet bad? My internet might be bad. I've had internet problems all day. I mean, I guess that's okay for the local recording as long as it doesn't go out completely. So, I don't know. It seemed fine to me. I didn't notice anything. You you seemed normal the whole time. Yeah, you're like <sighs> chopping in and out for me. It's the Snowblaze Imperial Imperial Winter Dark. Deep, rich, warm, and roasty, Snowblaze is the winter warmer you need after a thorough day on the slopes, which is something the fabulous Pelton brothers oh, do not yes. enjoy. Yeah, big time s- slopes people. It, Especially uh, other snowing and skiboarding words. <laughs> okay, great. Great dynamite topic. Uh, especially dark malts and an experimental yeast blend present a bold yet crisp texture, texture with a hint of spice. So I don't know about the winter warmer you need 22 ounces of that during this podcast. I think you, I think you do because this is still the fabulous curse cast and not curse in the germane curse way. Curse in another way because the curse has continued this week. The Seahawks may have picked up a W against the Houston Texans, but a lot of other things went wrong around the NFL. And ultimately, a lot of things went wrong throughout the world of Seattle sports. We're, we're nearing in on Festivus, but I got a lot of problems with Seattle sports right now. But anyway, oh, let's get wow. to the toasts. Well, some of the toasts are quite unfortunate, as it turns out. Uh, we start off with our best wishes for Seahawks defensive back Gavin Heslop, who suffered fractures of both his fibula and his tibia in Sunday's Seahawks win over the Texans and underwent surgery Monday in Houston. Heslop had been elevated to the active roster in the wake of Jamal Adams' season-ending surgery and was playing on defense for the first time in his career when he was injured. Gavin Heslop was playing for the first time in his career on defense? He had played special teams a couple of times in the last few weeks, but these were his first defensive snaps. He played four on Sunday. Wow. So, unfortunate timing, certainly. Well, I'd turn the game off by that point because there was the DJ Reed injury. I'd not turn the game off. I'd flipped over to red zone, though. Um, there was the DJ Reed injury that happened, and I was like, let's get Gavin Heslop in, which ultimately ended up being pretty unfortunate for everybody um, and couldn't have predicted a serious injury like this. But No, certainly not. It's pretty pretty much the most unfortunate outcome you can have at the end of a game where you're basically just running out clock. It's almost like 
once you reach a certain threshold, maybe it's like, just let's just end this game. Alas, no. So get well soon to uh, Gavin Hessoff. Uh, next up, a con- I don't know. I assume you'll count this as part of the curse, but a congrats to you to men's soccer, which advanced to Sunday's final of the College Cup with a 2-1 win over Georgetown on Friday before losing 2-0 to Clemson on Sunday, falling behind early stages of this one and uh, never getting on the scoreboard. A phenomenal season for UW men's soccer. I mean, the best season that they've ever had. Yep. Uh, and in- incredible to have gotten this far. An unprecedented run for them. They had never made the College Cup previously, make it all the way to the final this time. Unfortunately, they couldn't just come up with that one more win. We also saw UW Volleyball's season come to an end with a 3-2 loss to number 2 seed Texas in the Sweet 16. Huskies took the first two sets in impressive fashion and had a chance to sweep, but the Longhorns rallied to win the third set 25-22 and then dominated the last two to complete the comeback. So we're understanding quite a bit more about the curse now. Uh, <laughs> and, and the way that the curse teases you is you think that something good is going to happen. You get all the way to the precipice. You get to the closest possible moment of something good happening, right? Sidney Jones has the interception in his hands. He's returning it. And then they come back. Not only was he touched down by contact. No, it's an incomplete pass. That's what this curse is about. It's about Jake Hayner's going to be transferring back to the University of Washington. We think it. We feel it in our bones. And then the curse is, oh, no, no. That's not going to happen. Advance to the finals of, of the footy four? Mm-mm. You can advance to the final, but that's where it stops. Up two sets to zero and, and up multiple points in the third match of that volleyball game. Taken away from you. Right when you think it's over. That's when the curse comes in. That's what's impressive about this curse of the Kraken is right when you start to believe that's when it comes back to get you. Anyway, our Seahawks Rams preview right after this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the curse apparently struck in our favor on Saturday in Portland in the MLS Cup final. Because speaking of getting all the way to the precipice, the Timbers, it looked like it was going to be the opposite. They're scoreless into stoppage time, trailing one nothing to NYCFC in MLS Cup 2021. Score a goal at the death on the on basically the end of stoppage time. Two force extra time goes on to PKs, where NYCFC comes up with the win over Portland, denies the Timbers a second MLS Cup. They still are one behind the Sounders. There we go. Uh, I've also determined the curse does not extend to the city of Portland because that would be pretty strange. <laughs> I don't know. David Lillard's injury, CJ McCollum's injury could extend to the city of Portland as well. <laughs> or it's one of our most positive, unambiguously positive test. Hello. At least cursed test. Unambiguously <laughs> positive. Congrats to Tyler Law. I mean, they, they did advance to the final of the college cup that was positive congrats to tyler lockett who joined steve largent as the second seahawks wide receiver to reach 1000 yard receiving yards in three consecutive seasons and tyler lockett continues to be underappreciated i'm not sure if it's true here they mike salk brought this up with pete carroll on monday morning and pete said not here but i kind of feel like maybe even here since 2018 when he emerged as a star lockett is ninth in receiving yards in the nfl 20th 
in targets. Among receivers with at least 200 targets in that span, Lockett's 10.1 yards per target ranks fourth behind Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown, and Debo Samuel. He's incredible. I mean, I I understand why DK Metcalf gets more attention, right? He's the more prototypical wide receiver. He's the wide receiver. We've talked about in the past. It's the football bias towards strength, speed, you know, size, those kind of measurable physical tools. Whereas Tyler Lockett, you know, he's not as fast as he once was. He's tiny for a receiver, but you know what he is? He's open all the fucking time. And able to come down to some of these balls. I mean, look, DK Metcalf is a phenomenal wide receiver also. That's not to take anything and makes amazing plays. We just happen to have two very good wide receivers on this team. But I, I do think Tyler Lockett is, and again, I don't know. He's one of the most underrated offensive threats around the NFL. Because players, you're parsing into, I don't fucking know how good all sorts. There's many players that are probably extraordinarily good players that I know nothing about. And the average fan probably knows nothing about. Like a wide, re- but at wide receiver, or that's what I'm saying. Like offense, it is on the offensive it, line, on the offensive line, and pl- places like sure. that. Sure, as as an offensive weapon, Tyler Lockett is up there with the most underrated players in the league. And you look at that ball that he had, the first catch along the sidelines that Russ threw to him, where the the pocket broke down. Russ threw it up. The fact that Tyler Lockett, like it was a great play by Russ, and puts the ball in the right place. But Tyler Lockett coming down with some of these catches. I mean, I think about the the Rams game. I think this was two seasons ago, the Thursday night game against the Rams, where Lockett had that catch in the corner. It's like he still had to make the catch. It's not just about Russ putting the ball in that place. These are not easy catches to make. And Tyler Lockett, for the most part, comes down with all of them. Yeah, and had a couple of huge ones on third down in addition to his touchdown on Sunday. Just another tremendous effort from Tyler Lockett. Uh, that's all I have for Toast. Should we get into the rundown? All right. We have to, we, we've been avoiding food for a while here. We might have a food update next week. Yeah, we're going to talk some food next week. We're going to talk some fried chicken, as Hello. a matter of fact. Maybe a late entry into our search. But uh, for now, let's turn our attention to Seattle sports and start with the Kraken who uh, suffered a 3 nothing loss Thursday coming home against Winnipeg. And then Saturday, I was in attendance with uh, Talking Taco Time co-host Randy for a 5-4 overtime loss against Columbus. I guess if you're going to say get into the precipice, this definitely counted because we saw the darkness. Mm-hmm. Kraken were down 4-1 in this game, scored three goals in the third period. The last one with, I think, like three minutes left somewhere in that range to tie it up, like right before you would have pulled the pulled the goalie. Uh, thrilling first overtime at Climate Pledge Arena in the history of the arena. And then within like 30 seconds of overtime, Columbus scores to end the game. Right. <laughs> kind, of, kind of anticlimactic. Of course, that's what happens. This is the crack and curse. We understand how it works. Do they do another 20-minute break or 15-minute break? They do not. I I did not know that. I learned that in the moment. I, I swear in the past they've done... Well, in, in the playoffs, when you have a full 20-minute periods of overtime and mm. the, the golden goal situation, then I assume there is a regular intermission. But this, they basically just treated like a timeout because you're only playing five minutes at most of three-on-three hockey in overtime before you get to the shootout. Ah, okay. So I learned a lot of stuff about overtime from this. It's pretty wide open with three-on-three. It's very exciting. Uh, in unfortunate news for the Kraken, Yanni Gord, <laughs> Riley Shahan, Colin Blackwell, and assistant coach Jay Leach all entered COVID-19 protocols last week. Uh, Gord, Shahan, and Leach on Saturday the morning of that game. 
and the Kraken with even with the point on Saturday to back down to 15th in the Western Conference and now 11 points out of a wild card spot in the West. Still early. It's still early, but they're now a third of the way through the season. They've played 27 games. Or no, wow. that's not right. Is that right? They've played tw- they seem to be playing play? every day. I don't I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but the Kraken seem to be playing all the time. Maybe it's at the end of the week. No, they have. They've played yeah, 27 games. So uh, they, they will be playing a lot this week as they play six games or five games in an eight-day span starting on Tuesday night. It's uh, one of the busier stretches of the season coming up for the Kraken here. Well, it, it also sounds, get some points. As, as they're nearing, you know, they're getting farther into the season, it seems like this is a pretty important stretch then if there's five games in eight days. You know, when, once we get to the other side of that, if they're still sitting in 15th place in the Western Conference, all of a sudden you're looking at it like they're going to need a pretty miraculous run here. Right. Now, the one thing about hockey is you don't really have to decide because the, the trade deadline is super late and also not actually technically a deadline, but uh, so they don't have to make decisions necessarily on keeping some of their players in the final years of their contracts. Mark Giordano, like an obvious trade candidate at, given his age and the fact that he's a free agent next summer. Uh, they don't have to make those decisions for a while, but we're trending, I think, towards... Uh, uh, trading away, being sellers at the trade deadline. Are right, the sound? Everything's a first for the Kraken, so it's exciting. Yeah, first trade deadline. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but also the first time being sellers at the trade deadline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sounders getting set for Tuesday's MLS expansion draft. No huge surprises in the protected list announced on Monday. Among players under contract for 2022, defenders A.B. Suzoko and Brad Smith, and goalkeeper Andrew Thomas were exposed as the Sounders chose to protect fellow left back Jimmy Madronda over Smith. Uh, Charlotte FC will have five total picks from the 22 eligible MLS teams, uh, those being the teams who did not have players selected in the most recent expansion draft before this, including the Sounders. So a decent chance Suzoko is someone who, you know, they, they signed last season and gave them some competent minutes as a center back when they had you know, players on international duty and some injuries there. So he would be a logical target, I think, for an expansion club. Well, Rain also getting prepared for their expansion draft, the NWSL expansion draft Thursday. As expected, the Rain left Megan Rapino available for Angel City FC and San Diego Wave, along with veteran defender Lauren Barnes, choosing instead to protect Rose Lavelle is their one protected USWNT allocated player. Angel City and San Diego can select one player each from the other MLS teams besides Kansas City, although only one total U.S. women's national team allocated player each. So probably not going, as we discussed last week, probably not going to be Rapino given her age and how settled she is in Seattle. But I, I suppose stranger things have happened. She's just not playing there. That's the reality. Again, she might play in L.A., especially with the investors there. Like the Angel City is going to be the marquee NWSL franchise as soon as they come in the league. So you so. think there's a possibility that Megan Rapinoe is not on OL Reign next year? I think it's a possibility. I'm not saying it's a high chance. I'm saying it's like 5% maybe. I mean, why wouldn't they just draft her then? Because they can probably draft a younger USWNT player. 
They can only draft one USWNT player at all. From yes, I thought you were saying from each team. No, that you can draft one player from each team, but only one total USWNT player each. Okay, that makes more sense. And they don't necessarily need a face of the franchise. I believe they already signed Kristen Press, if I'm remembering correctly. So she's going to be the face of the franchise. All right, let's move on to UW basketball. Women, The women were back in action on okay, Friday, getting a 77-59 win at Seattle U after a couple of weeks off. It was a nice win for the Huskies, led by hot shooting with Alexis Grisby, Grigsby knocking down seven three-pointers en route to 23 points as UW scored a season-high 77 as a team. This weekend, the Huskies wrap up non-conference play by hosting Eastern Washington and Nevada as part of the annual Husky Classic at Heckett. UW men's basketball also got a two-week break. It was not on the schedule as it was for Seattle U. Alas, is <laughs> Sunday's game at number five, Gonzaga, was also canceled due to the outbreak of COVID-19 on the roster. The third game postponed or canceled consecutively as the team was unable to resume practicing by Thursday when that decision was made ahead of the scheduled Sunday matchup. Now, the second consecutive year that UW and Gonzaga have been unable to play due to the pandemic, Uh, interrupting the series that resumed in 2016. So one would think another week should allow the Huskies to return to the court Saturday when the host Seattle U is part of a day-night doubleheader at Heckhead with that Husky Classic. The Redhawks off to an 8-3 and three start under interim coach Chris Victor after that coaching change that we talked about right at the start of the season, but 0-3 against teams in the Ken Palm top 240. So the Huskies should be favored in this one. They've been beating up on St. Martin's. Uh, a fair number of St. Martins, yes. Uh, next, <laughs> fair number of St. Martins. <laughs> no, not no, mostly not St. Martins, but a lot of teams ranked in the three hundreds on Ken Palm. Next Tuesday, the Huskies will close out non-conference play by hosting Utah Valley. The Wolverines could be a tricky opponent under Coach Mark Madsen. Hello, having started seven and three with a shocking overtime win over BYU at home. That's one of four overtime wins so far for Utah Valley. Wow. Out of their seven, they're three and three in regulation, four and oh in overtime. So as long as the Huskies can avoid overtime, they're probably in good shape in that one. But definitely a, a tricky opponent given Utah Valley's start. Let's move on to Husky football, where as you mentioned earlier, the week's big news is that Jake Hayner is not coming back to Utah. Kraken! What has it this curse taken from us? <sighs> Not only did this curse take Jake Hayner from us, right when you started talking about it, my computer crashed for like 20 minutes. So I didn't even have a chance to get all worked up about it. I got all, <laughs> you brought up Jake Hayner to me and then I had to do, to wait while I was doing updates or whatever. But like, I just, honestly, the person who should be taking a victory lap here, and I hate to give this person credit for anything. It is my least favorite thing to do on earth is to give this person credit for anything at all, any capacity, no matter what they do, no matter what they say. And that person is you. <laughs> I mean, you said it right away. You looked a fool for a second, but you said it right away in the Kalen DeBoer emergency podcast that it would be difficult for Jake Hayner to transfer back to the University of Washington. 
I, I talked to the listener, Damon, about this earlier this evening. He says hello. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Damon. <laughs> maybe hello to the other listeners as well. Keep uh, it going with the Nate and Danny memes. <laughs> Never stop. <laughs> Good news. He won't. What was, there was one that was, oh, the Aaron Sorkin is, doesn't have social media and he asked me to post this. <laughs> I didn't see that one. I got to check that out. Uh, They're yeah, always the, perfect. There's never been a time where I'm like, no, no, no more Nate and Danny memes. 100% of the time, it's what I'm looking for. And he brought this up as well. He, he mentioned that I have untapped legal talent, which, uh, you know, that was that was my aspiration when I started college. I was anticipating becoming a lawyer. This, God. this whole podcaster thing wow. remains a lark. I think Anyways. how horrible your life would have been if you were a lawyer. No, I definitely would not be able to... Uh, uh, be I would not be uh, functionally retired. At this I age. went into college wanting to be a music journalist. Oof, dark timeline. Wow. Nearly avoided that. Anyways, so it does seem that to some extent, Jake Hayner and Kaylin DeBoer and a bunch of other people clearly misread the likelihood of him getting a waiver and being automatically eligible. It's tough to say how much that interacted with the fact that Fresno state hired Jeff Tedford, brought him back as head coach and, you know, Hayner feeling like, okay, I'm going back to the coach that I originally transferred to play yes. for. Really? It's, it's all always full circle with Jake Hayner, no matter yeah, what way capacity. Or another. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a never ending circle that no matter which direct. <laughs> I guess all circles are never ending. Uh, it's like two circles that are con- that are connected to each other that are never ending. I the just Bendai. I just invented an eight. <laughs> <laughs> the Venn diagrams are just one circle. Jake Hayner. Two two circles of Jake Hayner's life stacked on top of each other that also intersect. It's the shape that's never been seen before. It's tough to know how much to blame the NCA here, I guess is what I'm saying. Blame the NCA? It's always 100% ch- chance to blame the NCA. That's always what you should be doing. They're a much easier target, certainly, than Jake Hayner just wanting to play for Jeff Tedford. I, I think the reality is both of those things are true. Is if Jake Hayner would have known 100% that he was going to get that waiver, he probably would have already announced UW. And he, I think I mean, the, he said in his video he was intending to come to UW. Like, you completely acknowledge that. At the same time, even if maybe he would have preferred to have come back to UW and to play with Caitlin DeBoer, the complications about the waiver plus Jeff Tedford ultimately outweighed that. It's not a bad outcome for him to stay at Fresno State and play for Jeff Tedford. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Is it a bad outcome for the University of Washington that this happened? Or is there a silver lining? Well, are you looking for me to rationalize? Because let me tell you. I'm going to go get another drink. I'll I'll, I'll I'll take your answer offline. Like I do. So we talked about this last week. Michael Penix Jr., another Kaelin DeBoer quarterback who he coached in one year at Indiana in 2019, had a higher QBR that season by far than Jake Hayner had last season when you adjust for his strength of uh, the competition that they faced. He has also entered his name in the transfer portal in the same situation where he would have just one year of eligibility. Now, he is a first-time transfer, so he would be automatically eligible next season, wouldn't have to go through the waiver process like Hayner would have had to. So if he chooses UW, then that may be a better outcome for UW than Jake Hayner coming back. Uh, 
even though it's not a Jake playing quarterback for UW, which is still the best outcome. And let the rationalization games begin. Now, he might not choose UW either. There's also a lot of quarterbacks in the transfer who have entered their names in the transfer portal. It's it's basically, I don't want to, it's kind of a musical chairs at quarterback now. I mean, the other reality is that, again, I really, really don't like to give credit to this person. I just cannot, cannot express clear enough how little I want to give credit to this person. But the other person who should be taking uh, uh, at least a possibility of a victory lap here, a pre-victory lap here, is you. Oh, no. Again? Because you highlighted throughout the season the possibility, the likelihood that UW's starting quarterback for next season was not currently on the roster. And I think now the likelihood of that, when we thought it was Jake Hayner, obviously it was basically 100%. Even without Jake Hayner, factoring in all of the the experienced quarterbacks who are in the transfer portal, and knowing that Kalen DeBoer at least had the mindset with Jake Hayner coming into UW that he was probably going to be looking for a quarterback from an outside school, I just feel like the chances of somebody who's currently in the transfer portal ending up at UW and ending up as the starter next year are pretty high. I mean, it is a little different if you bring in a transfer with multiple years of eligibility, because then that starts to complicate Sam Heward's path to the starting job. It makes, I think, more sense if it's someone like Hayner would have been, or Penix, who, according to 247sports.com, visited UCF and their head coach Gus Malzahn over the weekend. Uh, the, if it's one year of eligibility, then you know that gives Heward a year to acclimate to Kalen DeBoer's system and then potentially become the starter with you know, three years of eligibility remaining. I mean, it also raises the question. Like, I guess I, again, I don't mean to give credit to you here, Oh no! but Sam Heward may have played himself out of the entrenched quarterback of the future for UW. I'm sure that Kalen DeBoer recognizes that talent, but like, if there were a quarterback who was similarly recruited, who has experience at another school, I believe there's a quarterback who started like 10 plus games for Texas A&M this year, who just entered the transfer portal today. There are some experienced quarterbacks out there. Lost um, Spencer Rattler, who I believe transferred to South Carolina. Lost is, is, is one way to put it. But uh, I'm saying of of experience. Keaton Slovis, another player. Keaton who... Slovis. Placed his name in the transfer portal. I mean, there there are a lot of options here. I don't know if you're Kalen DeBoer. I mean, Keaton Slovis has two years of eligibility. Yes. If you're looking at this and you're like, I confidently know that Keaton Slovis is a better quarterback than Sam Heward, at least for next season, and I'm getting two years of Keaton Slovis, I can figure out quarterback after that. And Sam Heward has shown, shown in the small sample size that he's not necessarily the obvious quarterback of the future. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right, at least of the immediate future. So, yeah, it does, it raises that question. I mean, I guess we'll see when sort of the dust settles on this transfer window, what ends up happening. When, how many years does Kalen DeBoer's wanting to come in fast at UW? You know, 
he's not wanting to come in and be like, I'm developing Sam Heward. When he's a senior, we're going to be really good. I don't think it, he might have that much time, but the way that things are moving in college football, like he may and only have two seasons as head coach. You know. There's a bit of an opening. I mean, I think Mario Cristobal had already left Oregon by the time that we recorded last week, but uh, certainly them going with a first-time head coach creates more of a power vacuum in the Pac-12 North than existed a week ago. I suppose so. Do you think it's that different than if they'd hired Chip Kelly? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it is that different than if they had hired Chip Kelly. I mean, just there's, it's not like a wazoo situation where there's a great deal of continuity. There's going to be a pretty chain, dramatic change in philosophy in Oregon where they're hiring a new offensive coordinator as well because Joe Moorhead got the Akron job. So, you know, it's just, there's, there's dramatic changes and that creates opportunity. They sure. might be, I mean, they might be very good again. That wouldn't be surprising. I mean, I, they're I still going to have both those things. They're still but... going to have the most recruiting talent in the Pac-12 North by far. <laughs> this is what we have to specify now: recruiting ranking talent. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I, I fully agree with that. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Oregon. It's a change that I just I don't even really have a take on it because there isn't a tenure as a head coach for what's the coach's name from Georgia? Uh, Dan Lanning. Oh, Dan Lanning. Who uh, shares my birthday, but is four years younger than that's I am. Pretty wild. That's that's a that's a pretty good sign. I'm old when head coaches in college football are four years younger than I am. God, pretty good sign. You're old. The but the other thing is the coaches. Maybe aside from like a Dave Aranda type situation, I just felt like most of the coaches that we heard circling the Oregon job, none of them. I think Dan Lanning is the most frightening especially long-term, of all of the names that we heard surrounding Oregon. Do you think he has a higher upside if everything hits correctly? I mean, sure, than Chip Kelly at this point, than Justin Wilcox, right? Like Uh, Kalani Satake, who did end up signing an extension, I believe, at BYU, or reportedly was on the verge of signing an extension. The amount of coaches who got paid this offseason, it's like... I mean, it's offensive, of course, to the athletes. I suppose for the coaches, more power to them because why not, right? You're playing this game. Why not get the most that you can? But the amount of coaches who've both gotten money by going to get other jobs and by having their names rumored, like, I I mean, I believe that Dan Lanning took over for Mel Tucker as defensive coordinator at Georgia. And it's like that path that Mel Tucker took from Pac-12 to massive extension in the Big Big Ten to being presumably the highest or second highest paid employee of the state of Michigan. Like Dan Lanning could be doing that in two years also. I mean, the interesting thing about the Oregon coaching search is that the coaches to whom they were linked were basically all the same coaches to whom UW was linked. Like the, if he, I would have thought that that would have been a higher degree of, you know, it would have been a different tier of job, but the candidates that they attracted did not indicate that they were. Which is very different, of course, than USC being able to hire Lincoln Riley. Well, yeah, who would be a name for Oregon then? Like, I mean, it's tough to say because so many of those candidates had already gone off the board by the time that Oregon had that choice because of the timing of Mario Cristobal's departure. I so that that part of it is tough. But I, I'm just gonna say I don't think that Brian Kelly was probably going to 
Eugene, Oregon. Same with Lincoln Riley. Can you imagine him adopting a Northwest accent? <laughs> a Northwest accent. Can you imagine how much house you could get for $6 million in Eugene, Oregon, though? Uh, I, I think the names that were hypothetically going to move, the bigger names that were hypothetically going to move, already moved. Or they got paid. So I, I think in that, Matt Campbell's case. Just staying put in Ames, Iowa, apparently. Were they linked to Matt Campbell at all? Uh, I don't think they were, but maybe because of the fact that he just already had turned down enough jobs by that point. People got it. I, I felt like, ultimately, the names that were linked to Oregon generally were smaller names than UW. Yeah, and maybe for that same reason. Um, but at the same time, you look at, I believe, Kirby Smart was a first-time head coach at Georgia. Obviously, it's a radically different situation, but you do say to yourself, he's Dan Lanning is somebody who has coached one of the best defenses of all time in this current Georgia defense uh, and who has experience in the SEC. I don't know whether that'll translate to Oregon, but I think it's a worthwhile risk at the very I least. Been, I would have been more concerned if they had hired Tony Elliott, who took the Virginia job. If they had hired someone who had an offensive background. You would have been more scared as a Husky fan. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, o- offense is easier to coach, and we know that it's more consistent year to year than defense is. So early National Signing Day in college football is this Wednesday. Husky's unlikely to sign many players with uh, the turnover in the small, what was already a small class after the coaching change. It's only going to be a handful of players, uh, but you know, hopefully can keep some of the uh, the key recruits from the group that had committed to Jimmy Lake prior to the coaching change. They already kept their most important one. Who's that? Young Kate Otten. <laughs> Ryan Otten, yes. I don't know if he's officially... They, he hasn't signed yet. Doesn't sound like he's going anywhere, though. Long legacy of Otten's at UW. There's one recruit, but it, it is like... I feel like there's like panic mongering. I guess we talked about this offline. There's panic mongering around losing players in the recruiting class. And every time I'm like, oh man, they lost whatever player. And I'm like, okay, this is like a fringe two to three star tight end or whatever. And it's like, I don't, fine, I guess. I feel like people shit so much on the recruiting class that Jimmy Lake had. And now we're losing these players and people are concerned about it. It's like, I don't, I don't know what you're looking for here. It's the classic joke. The food is terrible in such small portions. So uh, Jeremy Bernard Bernard out of uh, the Las Vegas area, who's a four-star wide receiver, one of the other important commits, to, he has indicated that he's still still on board. Uh, he's definitely one of the ones you know they wanted to make a priority, I'm sure. Do you feel like they're going to be in the mix for players? I saw there was a player today who uh, committed to Arizona who decommitted and was opening up their uh, their search. And like with the amount of uh, turnover in Pac-12 coaching, I feel like there must be some players who are out there that UW can re-engage with. For sure. And then there's also, they, they seem to be going after some, some Michigan recruits who Courtney Morgan had been involved in recruiting there. <laughs> so we'll see. 
I mean, they now they can't sign that many players because they just don't have that many players leading, leaving, although you had a couple of players enter their names in the transfer port- portal today. Sawyer Racanelli posted a farewell wide receiver uh, to UW, so he clearly is going to transfer. Tight end Mark Redman, who is also part of the 2020 recruiting class, uh, was the other player who uh, reportedly entered his name in the transfer portal. So we'll see what happens there. Those clear up some scholarships, but they didn't have that many graduating seniors this past year. So it's basically just transfers and guys going to the NFL. So I guess that's all we'll see. I, so I mentioned- we still though, Jake. Jake, you're going to be staring longingly, longingly like Wolverine at that photo of Jake Hayner when we do the updates all next season. I, I don't know if this was at the end of Harry and the Hendersons, but I'm pretty sure that the, the Hendersons had to turn away Harry at the end. They had to tell him that they didn't care about him anymore. And for me, the, the best thing that could possibly happen is us not caring about Jake Hayner next year. That would be the most amazing thing that could happen is Jake Hayner can just exist at Fresno State, be good, be bad, whatever. And we're so happy with our current quarterback, Michael Penix Jr., that we don't we don't need Jake. We don't need to think about Jake. Let's maybe going forward, and I don't want you to say that you have to give me credit for this either, but let's maybe not tie our hopes to any specific individual quarterback transfer into your job going forward. That's my advice. Uh, but we're obviously going to wish the best for Jake Hayner at Fresno State. I'm still like Fres- Jake Hayner and Jeff Tedford. We're still going to be pro Fresno State next year. Sure, I'm just saying I'm not. I'm not wishing ill will on Jake Hayner for this. I'm just saying if things are good enough, we won't. Our, 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 the I won't drift. Yes, that's that's fair. That that was definitely a factor in why Jake Hayner became so important to our coverage this season. So I was saying this afternoon, it feels like this is a semi-emergency pod. Not about a Seahawks game, because they beat the Texans. Oh, God. It was run-of-the-mill, 33-13. What you would have hoped would have happened. But a (sighs) semi-emergency pod, four Rams Cardinals, with the Seahawks playing the Rams this weekend. Your Rams. given, Given the ongoing debate about the Sean McVay Matthew Stafford partnership that is this podcast. This is really the Kevin Credit podcast. I hate it. <laughs> it is a tough pod for you. This is the worst podcast of the year. We've got the music podcast coming up later this week, being being recorded later this week, released early next week. Next Monday is the plan. Uh, well, maybe maybe tag tag it with the ACX Rams if there's need, we need to have an emergency pod. We those have to be separate. We can't tag them together. All right. Don't you think about the history of this at all? <laughs> Decades from now, when people are going back and listening to the Pelton cast, your music, they're going to be like, I, it's attached to some random football game from 2021 where the Seahawks went 5-12. and 12. Um, Anyway. All right. Well, maybe we wouldn't release it on Monday in that case. Anyway, uh, you get the We're not, you get we're the not credit. doing an emergency podcast if they lose on Sunday, you know? So it can't be you. They went five and twelve. Things would have to go very poorly for us to do an emergency podcast off a loss. It's happened. That's how bad this UW season was. That we turned all the way to following Jake Hayner every single week. I mean, maybe if Pete Carroll's on the verge of getting fired, <laughs> it's that bad. Anyway, you get the Kevin Credit podcast, the first ever, first of its kind. 
because I've got the music podcast coming later. So we'll be even by the end of the week. Okay. I'm playing on my home field for that one. Uh, I'm playing on my home field, which is Drake in the weekend. <laughs> you actually probably are more familiar with like pop, pop culture music than I am. Although that Pitchfork Top 100 was very much a lot of songs I did not know. It was foreign to you? You didn't know the yeah. song Boo, number 41 on there? I, I didn't know that one. There we go. Um, anyway, you, you, you get a slight W after this game tonight against the Cardinals for your Stafford-McVay partnership. The Rams had, of course, started the season 7-1, and one, reached that after blowing out the Texans on Halloween and then trading for Von Miller, but subsequently lost three in a row, going winless in the month of November, just like the Seahawks. <laughs> Having committed eight turnovers in three games in that losing streak, six by Matthew Stafford after just seven in their first eight games. But they got a get-right game against Jacksonville, and then on Monday, the offense was impressive in their win over the Arizona Cardinals to uh, stay in the mix in the NFC West. But... uh I, do you want to talk about that first, or should we talk about Seahawks Texans? I don't. Th- we have nothing else to say about. Do we ta- want to talk about the Rams first, or the Rams Cardinals game? Rams Cardinals game. I don't. Do you have thoughts on the Rams Cardinals game? Not specifically. It's not an emergency yeah. podcast. We don't care about these teams. What are you talking? Like, uh, I'm not. We following- do care about this team. Okay. I don't dislike. Matt Stafford and Sean McVay so much that I'm willing to do an emergency podcast that because they had a kind of good game against the Cardinals. The fact that you're calling it a kind of good game is telling on yourself. Hang All right, let's talk, about, let's talk about let's talk about the Rashad one Penny victory game. against the fraudulent Cardinals. Great. It's like Wazoo beating UW in the Apple Cup. It's like Sam Heward started. Clearly injured Kyler Murray started this game. Clearly injured. He threw for 383 yards. Uh, Did you really Penny Kyler threw for 383 yards? I'm pretty sure he threw a lot of passes, but he did throw for 383, I think, was the number that I have in my head. Rashad Penny ran for more total yards on Sunday, 137 on 16 carries, than he had in eight previous total games since his ACL injury, coincidentally, in Los Angeles against the Rams in December 2019 having come into it with 112 on his previous 38 carries. So it was awesome to see. I mean, I, I told you pregame, I was really excited about having a week of Rashad Penny as the feature back. I mean, you know, we talked about that, and that was against the Saints that he had. I We've gone over this a few times. He has the first carry of the game, first Cardinals. down. Again, that two was the Cardinals for, game. Two carries for 19 yards. Or was it the Saints or the Cardinals, though? Cardinals. Okay, so in that Cardinals game, has the fir- takes the first carry of the game, first down. I'm not even in the stadium yet, right? Boom, he is injured pretty much immediately after that. And Rashad Penny, who dating back even a couple of seasons ago, pre-injury, he was looking like he was going to be a factor for the Seahawks. Never fully made it back, it felt like. And when I heard Pete Carroll this morning on his coach's show saying, it feels really good to know we have a home run hitter back there, I do feel like... Yay, though running backs might be replaceable, not all running backs are the same. And I do think that this version of Rashad Penny gives them a little bit of a different element, absolutely, than Adrian Peterson, but then Alex Collins as well. I mean, 
I do agree that there's definitely a difference among running backs in ability once you get to the second level. It's just that I think getting to the second level is primarily a function of your offensive line and not of the running back, is how I put it. Sure. Does that make and, sense? Well, I mean, Carson was also very good at getting to the second level as well. You know, he had definitely had that ability to, he was one of the best tackle breakers in the league. But I really think that a healthy Rashad Penny is a factor on offense. I got to admit that I had I had thought that was not the case, that the athleticism that had made him such a special player. And I got to say, I hadn't realized, Pete Carroll mentioned this today as well, that he had seven return touchdowns at San Diego State on kickoff returns. That's pretty impressive. Now, still not as many as uh, Dante Pettis had Dante punt return Pettis touchdowns like. over the precisely the same four-year span. I went and looked this up. He had nine punt return touchdowns. But... Uh, Still pretty pretty damn good. And is a we punt saw return that. touchdown easier than a kick return touchdown, or definitely not in the NFL because when this is the first one in like two years, yeah, right? The Chicago Bears had that one on Sunday. Uh, at the college level, the rules are different, so I I would have to go look it up. I'm not sure off the top of my head. But again, we saw that athleticism. Often it was on screen passes. He was a big factor in the 2019 season before that ACL injury. And I just kind of thought that might be gone because of that injury and everything you had dealt with the past two years. So it's nice to know that it's still there. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, we talked about that Thomas Rawls season. This has obviously been one game. It is uh, way too early to have that conversation. But I do think it's exciting. And and, and even just as like a human story, yeah. it was awesome to see. <clears throat> because you're still like, you know, I see LJ Collier out there. And while it's like you mock him for <laughs> making his first good play of his career or whatever by batting down a pass, maybe being in there on a tackle. But he also at the same time... He had some good plays in 2020. This is probably his first impactful play this season. Yes. I want LJ Collier to succeed. You know? It's like, that's at the core of it. It's like, I ultimately want him to play really well as a person, as everybody. You want everybody on the team to play well. And I think that's what it is with Rashad Penny. Just because he was overdrafted doesn't mean you don't want him to succeed. And to have him talk about getting through the game, having this monster game, and just being so happy that he didn't get injured, it's like, as a person, that must feel great. Uh, and For sure. being able to have to come back the next day and have the team cheer you on it. Pete Carroll talk about you on his radio show. It's such an awesome experience. And I think that is like, it's exciting to see Rashad Penny have these big plays. We haven't seen them from the running back position basically all season, uh, except on fake punts. But like having that element as part of the offense is great, but also as a human being for Rashad Penny, I think it's even better. Yeah, I would agree with that. We sort of saw the opposite of that with Jamal Adams, who was devastated to see his season ended by a second shoulder surgery in the past year. Uh, you know, P. Carroll said this is not as serious as the one that he underwent last season at the end of the year, but this time it cost him the final five games of the season. So really tough to say on from that standpoint. All right, anything else on Sunday's game? Uh, it was just a good win. It was just a good a win. Really nice win. <laughs> I think people are a little too high on the defense, given that Davis Mills did complete his first 14 passes. And as we mentioned, they were 32nd by a wide margin in offensive DVOA coming into this game. They were sneaky good in defensive DVOA, not very good run defense, which the Seahawks exploited. Uh, but, you know, the 
the passing attack, I think, was actually more effective than was reasonable to expect in this game. Despite the, the fact passing that, attack. Yeah, despite the fact that it was a very atypical Russell Wilson game, he had huge EPA per play and actually slightly below average completion percentage over expected again, hmm. which is usually kind of the opposite, does much better in terms of CPOE than expected points added. Uh, I think we saw what we wanted to see out of the game, which was Russ still looked normal. Like we had the, the, the switch flipped against San Francisco and it was like, this is going to continue, right? We all kind of assumed it would, but seeing it actually happen is different. And yeah. I, th- I think there was maybe one throw that Russ missed the entire game. It was like, even the incompletions he had, it wasn't like we saw the previous two weeks where he's just sailing the ball over an open receiver's head. He missed DK on the touchdown, or he threw it behind DK. But, I mean, that's going to happen sometimes. Nobody's perfect. That's what I'm saying, is that I think there was one play that he really missed. And, like, the deep ball to Tyler Lockett was phenomenal, right? The escaping the pressure. Yeah. Three? Were you saying three deep balls? No, no, I was saying it was okay. Oh, that throw? Yes. It was okay. It was normal Russell Wilson. And it was just like, okay, this is this is it. We We have Russ back. The one thing that was not normal, Russell Wilson, is not getting sacked in a game for the Hello. first time all season. So that was exciting. I think, I don't know, that Texans D, you're saying that they're sneaky good, but man, they just like, I feel like they lost. They didn't lose him, like they'd have him wrapped up. But other teams sometimes, like he'll escape I, from that first pressure and they get hit with more pressure. Sneaky good. Just the defense in general. They get, they get a lot of interceptions and such. Well, uh, and I also think the defense, I mean, saying what you're saying about Houston moving the ball they gave up 13 points and they didn't do it with plays that are not repeatable skills it wasn't like they had a bunch of lucky fumbles or interceptions or whatever right they did it with no turnovers in this game and I think that that is a I think that's a big deal all right should we talk about the Rams let's talk about the Rams but also want to say this is it this is the season right here it is I mean is Pete Carroll said Monday the the last two weeks have been the season too. This is just a much bigger test this season with the Seahawks <laughs> entering this game as seven point underdogs. And you know this is this is the Seahawks Super Bowl. Every again every week is, but this is the one that we've had circled, and for sure. especially once they beat the Forty ers we've had it circled for all of a week. <laughs> but <laughs> but what and, a week it was. And we talked about this last week. What we were looking for from that Seahawks game against the Texans was how are we going to feel mentally about the Seahawks game against the Rams? It was kind of just like, this is setting us up. This this was the appetizer, right? For the main dish, which is this Rams game. It is a terrifying game. Despite the, fact the that the, despite the fact that the Rams are suddenly dealing with a COVID outbreak, They've placed players on the COVID-19 list three consecutive days. First to Gerald Henderson Jr. on Saturday, then tackle Rob Hevenstein and cornerback Dante Dion on Sunday, and then star Jalen Ramsey and Tyler Higbee on Monday afternoon just before their game in Arizona. Uh, depth chart very thin for the Rams at cornerback on Monday night, which allowed the Cardinals to successfully target practice squad call-up Kareem Orr, who is making his Rams debut. Uh, that's part of a lot of those 383 yards that Kyler Murray threw for him. 
Uh, the Rams entered Monday number five in offensive DVOA, up from 10th last season and 16th in 2019. Still not as strong as the 2018 Super Bowl team that finished second in DVOA during the regular season before scoring three points in the Super Bowl. That's that's Jared Goff's 2019 Super Bowl team. Thank you. Uh, Stafford was the league's call, most effective. Call me when you could say the words Matt Stafford and Super Bowl in the same consecutive it's, sentence. Stafford was the league's most effective quarterback through eight weeks, completing 69% of his passes for 9.1 yards per attempt with 22 touchdowns, just four interceptions. During the three-game losing streak, that dropped to 61% completions, 6.6 yards per attempt, and five interceptions over those three games. But Monday looked a lot more like the Stafford we saw the first eight games of the season. (laughs) It's scary. I I don't know what to say. I, I they're, mean, they're a terrifying team. And part of that slide also coincided with, I believe two of the games were with Robert Woods being out. That's correct. He was available for the first game, but then they lost Woods to an ACL tear in practice in week 10. Uh, Cooper Cup also was less explosive during that losing streak after catching 63 passes for 924 yards in the first eight games with 10.3 yards per target. He still averaged ten nearly 10 catches a game during the losing streak, but averaged just 8.7 yards per target, so a bit more modest. And then stepping in for Robert Woods, we saw on Monday night Odell Beckham Jr. with a breakout game, catching six of seven targets for 77 yards, his third touchdown in his many games. Turns out OBJ may still have it. It's one game. It was a very impressive performance. They had a very good game. I, is that what you want to hear? Great. It's That part of it is terrifying, for sure. Every part of it is terrifying. You're talking about the Rams, and you said something's terrifying, and you didn't mention Aaron Donald. But <laughs> Fair. Every part of the Rams is terrifying. There's not been a moment against the Rams in the last... Maybe, maybe the, the first regular season game last season the home regular season game where Goff was injured and they were just terrible in it. But I think that's the only time. That was the second game. They played the first time in LA last year. I think that's the only time in the Sean McVay era where we said to ourselves, oh, the Rams are beatable, right? It's just been so difficult with this team. Even when the Seahawks have won, it's always been, I mean, I remember the game, God, 2000. 18, 17, where they had a touchdown that bounced off Cooper Cup's hands. Uh, there was the missed field goal that they had in 2019. Yeah. In 2019, there was the missed field goal that Greg Zerline. I mean, the game was over, right? We went home and celebrated, but like they, he just happened to miss the game, that field goal. And other than that, it has just been a nightmare dealing with this team because Sean McVay is so good at game planning against this Pete Carroll defense. It really just feels like there is nothing that Sean McVay understands better than scoring points against this defense, maybe partially because it resembles his own to a certain extent. Uh, and clearly pass rush needs to be a huge part of that. But that is the that is the piece to me more than anything else that go, you have to go in this game and not feel that excited about it because you know that this team is going to move the ball all down the field, there's going to be wide open Cooper Cups on so many plays. 
I mean, we even saw Houston have a success with a lot of the same crossing routes that the Rams just torched the Seahawks with in Seattle on Thursday night, low those many weeks ago when Russell Wilson got hurt. Also, the wrinkle of having Cooper Cup come out of the backfield and run an option route, which apparently is a thing now not in the okay. NFL. This is not we're, okay. We can't, we're not prepared to deal with that no. whatsoever. No. Uh, as far as their running game, with Cam Akers injured in training camp, Daryl Henderson, his junior, has been the running back one most of the season, ranking eighth in DVOA. But he saw no snaps, even though he was active against Jacksonville due to a thigh injury before missing Monday's game. As we mentioned, he was on the COVID-19 list. Sony Michelle stepped into the lead role against the Jaguars and had a 24-carry, 121-yard game. Still just 26th in DVOA entering Monday when he had a solid but not, not spectacular game. Uh, that Jacksonville game, a big part of the success was the Rams using six offensive linemen frequently, something they've rarely done under McVay. We saw a little bit of that on Monday night. Uh, at the other end of the field, the Rams entered Monday sixth in defensive DVOA, down slightly from last season's finish in fourth place under now Chargers head coach and Pelton cast favorite Brandon Staley. <laughs> Given the talent loss, they lost to uh, uh, John Hope, Johnson. third, Pelton brother. Oh, someday. John Johnson, some other key players to free agency and the inevitable regression. Raheem Morris has probably done an impressive job in his first year as defensive coordinator. They've tilted a little more toward run defense, ranking second in rush DVOA and 11th in pass DVOA, entering Monday after finishing fourth in the latter category last year. And Aaron Donald, as you said, still Aaron Donald, wrecker of rules. Three sacks Monday gave him 10 on the season, his fifth consecutive in double digits. I originally had in the notes that he was a little behind his pace the previous few years, and all of a sudden he is no longer behind his pace at all. He's just on pace. How does Aaron Donald exist? <laughs> the real question is, how did Aaron Donald go to what, slip to what, 12th in the draft? 13. I don't think he was, he wasn't even the Rams' first pick, was he? Because of Jared Goff. No, they took someone else that year. I don't think it was Goff. I have to look this up. That does not sound right to me. No, I think they had like the 8th and 13th picks. Oh, it was the 2nd and 13th picks. They took Greg Robinson. Oh, God. <laughs> he did not last with the Rams. Also, Blake, Rams legend Blake Bortles. Went out of him. <laughs> I mean, it was a pretty damn good draft, though. You look at from 9th to 17th, everyone in the draft made the Pro Bowl. And from 5th to 17th, Justin Gilbert to Cleveland and Avery was the only one who didn't. Uh, watching Aaron Donald play is like a video game where they randomly generate players and then occasionally they just generate a player that's like all 99s and everything that like breaks the code. That's Aaron Donald. Everybody else is playing one sport and Aaron Donald is playing a totally different sport out there. So going against the Seahawks uh, uh, offensive line, <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be great. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. The the thing about the performance on Monday night, like I, I was watching that thinking to myself, I think Pete Carroll is going to watch this game and think two things. I think, that he is going to approach this game and say they need to take away those big completions, which is always going to be a Pete Carroll perspective and is a correct perspective. Yes. I mean, and was, big, big completions were a problem for both teams on Monday. The I think Rams atypically beat in that way as well. I think he is also going to look at it as Sony Michelle got too much on the ground. 
I think those two pieces, I, I don't think the intermediate stuff is going to resonate that much with Pete Carroll. And that, for the most part, was places where like Cooper Cup was doing his damage. Uh, there was the Odell play where he was coming across the line and Robert Alford or whatever got caught up in traffic and it was a 29-yard gain or something like that. It was like, that's the shit. That's how the Rams are going to beat the Seahawks team. I don't know if it's going to be the big plays. That ball that Deshaun Jackson caught against the Seahawks uh, earlier in the season, I'm I'm not convinced that that's necessarily going to happen again. Will they get deep long? I mean, probably at some point, but I think it's going to be everything in between that's going to be an issue for them. And basically the same as we saw in that first game. Death by a thousand paper cuts. But we'll see. I mean, ultimately, that is what the Seahawks defense is designed to do. I mean, you look at the discrepancy between yards allowed and points allowed, and maybe it's just noise. Maybe it's just randomness in a small sample size, but there might be something to it. I mean, we talked about this last week. It's also largely the fact that they are the defense is rarely put in bad situations because the Seahawks turn the ball over less frequently than the other, any other team in the league. They don't go for fourth downs. They punt all the time. So the defense almost always has a lot of yards to play with. I mean, I think that strategy works against Davis Mills. I don't know if that strategy works against the Rams. In fact, we know the strategy does not work against the Rams. I, <laughs> we I, know I actually for a fact that it works against Jimmy G. It just doesn't work against the Rams. <laughs> I mean, the NFC West is a very strange kind of rock, paper, scissors. The Cardinals did beat the Rams earlier this season, but generally McVay has completely owned Cliff Kingsbury since they've been in the division. But the he can't deal with Kyle Shanahan for whatever reason. And the Seahawks have owned the 49ers, but have not been able to beat the Rams. Uh, and so I, I think it is disconcerting just knowing that that's the way that Pete Carroll is going to approach this game. I think he goes into every game saying to himself, "We're go- we, starting with we're going to stop the run. And ultimately, that's not... The Rams in the past have run the ball too much at various times. They probably still run the ball too much. But they're passing the ball, I'm pretty sure, statistically more than ever at this point. They, the offense has transformed slightly under Matt Stafford, and they're passing the ball a little bit more, which makes it even that much more dangerous. You can't just go into it saying you're going to stop the run and assume that everything else will fit in around it. This isn't Jimmy Garoppolo that you're playing. No. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's why the that's why they traded for Matthew Stafford is for those situations where... You know, defenses are loading the box, that sort of thing, trying to take away the intermediate routes. Not that the Seahawks will be able to do that. That you'll still have that big playability. On the other side of the ball, there clearly is a bit of a weakness in the secondary. And we've seen that a healthy Russ hitting Tyler Lockett, hitting DK Metcalf occasionally, maybe not as much as DK Metcalf wants, well, I mean, that's a big question mark in this game, right? Will Jalen Ramsey be available? Having apparently tested positive on Monday, there was there was reports from my ESPN colleague Adam Shafter that Tyler Higby had a single positive followed by, he said multiple negatives, but that they were still waiting for a PCR test. So it's unclear whether those were antigen tests or what the scenario was with those multiple negatives. But like there's... It seems more likely that Tyler Higby will be back this week, who's a big part of what they do offensively. And it was kind of remarkable that they were as effective as they were without him. But 
Jalen Ramsey totally changes the game plan for the Seahawks, whether he's in there or not in terms of throwing the ball DK Metcalf's direction. Well, and one of the things that I feel like we know about COVID outbreaks is a lot of this came out on Monday. And the reality is we're probably not going to get to Tuesday and it's going to be over. So, I mean, we, it's been a little different in a vaccinated world. We'll see if it's a ruling outbreak. I'm also not convinced that Jalen Ramsey is going to change the game plan that much. This could be a Tyler Lockett game. We could be having another Tyler Lockett game. Jalen Ramsey and DK Metcalf can be engaged with each other. And, you know, the, DK will still get targets, but like Tyler Lockett can be the go-to receiver for the Seahawks and they can win games with that being the case. I mean, yes. Then certainly they threw DK's way in the first meeting when he had five catches and five targets for 98 yards. But I, I feel like you're... Well, that was, that was of, Geno Smith almost entirely. Yeah, that's right. The, he, he threw his direction later in the game. But I mean, remember the game at LA last year, four targets, two catches, 28 yards for DK. Yeah. It's never fun to play at LA. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It hasn't been good. What do you want me to say? Uh, we'll see about Rashad Penny. I mean, it would be awesome to see some consistent play from Rashad Penny. And, you know, if they are able to gain, I, I think that's the piece is those big loss plays that they have multiple times per game, usually. Uh, plays where the defender's in the backfield immediately. It's going to happen against Aaron Donald and mitigating those as much as possible. And against Greg Gaines. I, oh, God. Greg Gaines is so good. Uh, the other thing that I noticed in the game against the Texans was on basically every drop back for the Seahawks, they had almost some form of play action. There was a little bit of motion, a little bit of at-snap motion, but it felt like they sort of realized any time we drop back, there should be some type of handoff action there, right? Whether it is an explicit, like, this is play action, at the very least, there's emotion. And it felt like they did that on almost every single pass in that game against the Texans, at least early on. I mean, it's definitely, yeah, that's that's the good offense. And, like, Shane Waldron, I think, found a good rhythm in that game. Obviously, a lot of stuff is going to work against Houston, that isn't necessarily going to work against the Rams, but I still liked what we were seeing from a process standpoint. For the most part, they could have run more motion. Uh, also, I want to note that over a three-game stretch, this actually was over the losing streak, uh, Greg Gaines played 98%, 96%, 93% of their defensive snaps, which is unreal for a defensive tackle. Especially it's a defensive like, tackle drafted in the fourth round. Pete would fucking love Greg Gaines. We were, how we do were, we not we end up with these players? Him. We were how what? Five minutes away from getting him. Oh yeah, yeah. It's so frustrating when it's like like Byron Murphy. I feel like Byron Murphy is a Pete Carroll cornerback, although Cooper Cup kind of uh owned Byron Murphy earlier today, which whatever he's Cooper Cup. I mean that that actually fits with being a Pete Carroll cornerback. <laughs> uh but ultimately, I was going to say I'm feeling good about this game. I'm not going to go that far. Can we pass on Greg Gaines three times in the fourth round alone? Who did we draft? Uh, Gary Jennings. Oh, God. Who did not make the roster? Yeah, released before the season start. 
uh, Phil Haynes, and then Ugo Amadi has had a reasonable career, certainly. Made some nice plays on Sunday. The run blitz was, was outstanding in particular. I am feeling in the year 2021 as good as I can possibly feel going into a game against the Rams. And and I think that's something. We know that Russell Wilson is seemingly feeling very comfortable. He's not missing throws anymore. You know, this isn't three weeks with Geno Smith. This isn't three weeks post-injury of Russell Wilson. This is the Seahawks looking like the Seahawks. And I think the thing that we've learned from these last two weeks is if Russell Wilson were healthy during that stretch, they would be a comfortable playoff team. It was, it was interesting. So I forget who had the tweet. Like, what would the Seahawks record be if Wilson hadn't gotten injured at all? And the like over the plurality, no, the majority, more than 50% of people had responded seven and six, which I feel like is actually too pessimistic. I'm probably more like eight and five if Russ never gets hurt, right? I mean, I don't, I'd have to look at it game by game. Hold on. I mean, they lost a lot of close games when in the stretch where a Russell Wilson was sidelined and B Russell Wilson wasn't healthy, like three points in overtime at the Steelers, three points at home to the saints. And then, you know, the, the Arizona loss where he wasn't himself two points out Washington, where he still wasn't quite himself. Like, I think it's reasonable to think three of those four could potentially flip from losses to wins. For sure. Yeah. They were, they were two and three. When he got injured, more or less. They're definitely beating the Steelers. Probably the Saints and the Jaguars. They probably still lose the Packers. And they probably still split the Cardinals in Washington. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it's reasonable. I mean, we would be talking about this team. Obviously, you can't say everything else that's happened. But, like, they would they would be a comfortable playoff team. They would be in the mix. It would be almost all the NFC West teams, there would be a possibility that the entire NFC West could go to the playoffs. I think that would be the conversation that we would be having. And who knows, may still have. But that is why going into this game, having seen it for a couple of weeks in a row with Russ, having seen this team ultimately be pretty healthy, all things considered, you know, the Jamal, Jamal Adams injury aside, the defense has a bit of continuity. It's not as much as we would like. But there is definitely some there. The secondary has been playing okay. If there was ever a chance that they could go into L.A. and sneak a victory against the Rams, I feel like this is the week. I mean, I don't know if I would say there, if there's ever a week. It was probably when they had Russ, uh, Jared Goff as their quarterback was if there was ever a week. What are you talking about? I, I mean, Jared Goff killed the Seahawks so many times. I don't think that was the issue in that game. I think it was more the Seahawks offense. I do feel like there's a reasonable chance, probably a slightly better chance than Vegas is giving the Seahawks. You're going into this with a bit of optimism. You're, you're not going into it saying to yourself, they're definitely going to lose this game. Correct. And I, I think the thing ultimately that's frustrating is if they do lose this game, the season's basically over. And it's a season because of what we just talked about, where it's like, it, it doesn't feel like it has to be this early, especially knowing what's coming on the schedule. 
between the Bears and the Lions the next two games after that. Just like, ugh. But we have to get there to make it a possibility. And I also think any of the intangible stuff, all of the other shit that goes into football, I feel like the edge is with the Seahawks in this one. The Rams are coming off a feel-good victory in Arizona. They're they're not going to they, they get every team is going to need every game as much. But I feel like the Seahawks are going to play this game with just a slight bit more edge to it. I think they know that they need it a little bit more. Even though Pete Carroll talks about the most important game being the next one on the schedule, he did not play that 49ers game that way. Uh, he, he went did. for a fourth down. They also ran a flea flicker. They no, that's what I'm saying. Is no, he treated that game differently. He didn't oh, treat okay. it. You're, he you're didn't treat it like it was the next game on the schedule. He treated that game like they absolutely have to pull out all the stops. He ran a fake fucking punt for God's sake. Like that was something where if they'd been comfortably going along, it's the type of thing where it's like people talk about like, oh, if you have a great team, you can go for every fourth down. It's like no. Nah, when your back is against the wall, that's when you need to try some shit. And I think the Seahawks are still a little bit in that mentality. They're getting confident because they know that they've played better these last couple of weeks, but they still have their backs against the wall. So it may ultimately not mean anything, but I think these teams are pretty close on paper. Chances of victory? 47%. That is very optimistic. I've talked to my. You've talked me into forty percent. I was going to be at thirty-five. I've talked my way all the way up to. What 40. was it? What changed? What got you that extra five percent? Uh, just feeling like these are the Seahawks are are much better than Vegas is giving them credit for at this point. They were in terms of a healthy Russell Wilson. And you didn't know that before we talked. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't know. No, I had no idea. And in the concerns about the Rams secondary, I think those are legitimate. If Jalen Ramsey doesn't play, it's a totally different matchup. Like, obviously, Aaron Donald is still record of worlds. The Rams gave the Seahawks problems before they <sighs> traded for Jalen Ramsey. Yes, all of those things are true. But if Russ can pick on weak corners with his choice of Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf, that's a very different scenario than what we've seen in recent years against the Rams. I. I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see it whether Jalen Ramsey is there or not. But this is like, you know, the thing that's fun about the playoffs is the stakes, which is, you know, that the following week you could not be watching any football at all. And I feel like to a certain extent, like these have those stakes for the Seahawks. You're going to be watching Red Zone over Seahawks Lions. Well, I mean, I'm going to be at Seahawks Lions. So that's true. You can't turn out, tune it off. Wow. The Kraken even ruined Christmas. Uh, Not yet. Boxing Hypothetically. Day. Uh, Hypothetically. Also, the Seahawks managed to ruin a lot of Christmases pre-Kraken. <laughs> they actually only you ruined the year, Christmas. Remember the year they lost to the Cardinals on December 23rd or whatever that was? It was the 24th. They lost on Christmas Eve. Well, that was the game that Tyler Lockett got hurt. I'm not thinking of that game. I'm thinking of 2019. The Seahawks are very good at ruining Christmas. Oh, so good at it. Or New Year's. Sometimes New Year's. But that that's why this is so fun. Like, that's why this will be so exciting to watch is the stakes are extraordinarily high here. 
for the Seahawks. I mean, it's their entire season on the line. They're still not guaranteed to make the playoffs, even if they win. But they're not guaranteed to make the playoffs if they win out. That that was one of the the takeaways from this past weekend. I still feel like if they do win out, there'll be a pretty good chance. But have we looked at that post post this game from five thirty eight? If they win. It's... 50-50, according to Ben Baldwin. That was before the Rams game. I'm not sure if that's changed it at all. Oof. Because there definitely was a scenario where if they beat the Rams this week, they would have finished ahead of the Rams. And that's off the table now. They cannot finish ahead of the Rams. I believe the Rams now. They, yeah, we, the Rams we, have nine wins, so I guess they can still finish tied with the Rams. But not ahead of the Rams. Uh, 43%. If they so went even, out. Even worse. Oof. The 50% may have been the New York Times simulation. Well, you got to win the games to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? The, the first step to 43% is still a large percent, right? Much less likely things have happened. 43% and, is still more than 0%. The most important thing that the Seahawks can do is beat the Rams to improve that percentage chance. There you go. If, if they win note, this game, it's going to go up. Uh, well, I screwed that up. Just, there you go. No, it is. Do, do, cut it off when you. All right. And then do your end on that note. On that note. Actually, I want to say one last thing. Yeah. Wait. Well, there you go. Uh, first off, do we have a listener email that we've ignored now two weeks in a row? We're we're not talking. The listener email is about the future of the Seahawks. We're okay. not talking about it until they get eliminated. Uh, I'm just keeping it in the notes, just in case. Email. Wow, oh, it very much is. Yes. Wow. <laughs> we're that's we're a, waiting on that. That's a 53 percent listener email. <laughs> it sure is. Yes. Or 60 percent in my case. But I do want to say. And I meant to mention this last week, Pete Carroll, for everything that we feel about Pete Carroll, right, as a as a head football coach, Pete Carroll still, I mean, we don't know him personally, seems like a great person, and is ultimately, I feel like there's, there's a difference between different types of coaches, right? Pete Carroll's a leader of fucking men here. And I do think that shaping people's lives, even he hearing Pete Carroll, the conversation that Salk had with him where he asked when he would give up on Rashad Penny, Pete Carroll's like, I'm the last person who's going to give up on somebody. And I think that optimism is huge to have as a coach, uh, but also the way that he translates his philosophy onto the team, I think is a huge deal. And you can recognize it last week. Uh, he mentioned at the very end of his interview, uh, uh, his coach's show on Monday morning, after this huge Rams vi- or 49ers victory, he had all these great plays to talk about. In the very end, he specifically went out of his way to mention that the Seahawks were getting their booster shots that day. And he was like, if you're out there, if you're on the fence, if you're thinking about it, the Seahawks are getting boosted. And that was such an awesome sentiment to have in that interview, in that moment, right? Coming off this victory, all of this excitement on the team and him saying to go out and, you know, for some people to get the booster shot, for other people getting the vaccine at all, like exhibiting that this team who is this, the definition of toughness and manliness in the city of Seattle, right, has huge influence in the suburban areas outside of seattle and 
to have that conversation. It is a huge deal what Pete Carroll is doing, both for the team and the players on the team and for the community in the Seattle area in general. And I think that that, more important than anything, is so awesome to see and to have like to feel like if you want the coach of your team to represent you if you want to feel like these players have have perspectives that you can really agree with i mean he's he's literally a booster of vaccinations and the boosters specifically and yeah i mean that is more important than anything that could possibly happen on sundays although it'd be nice if p carroll also trusted the science on fourth downs On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks.